Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Todd Treasurer, entrepreneur and founder of Financial Mentor. We talk about Todd's application of statistical methods to the financial markets, about financial and personal freedom, and his seven steps to seven figures. You can check out the show notes and all the links mentioned by Todd at economicrockstar.com forward slash Todd. The money is a reflection. It's not a cause. You are the cause. It's not about, you know, sitting on a beach in a hammock and having uh, umbrella drinks, you know. It's it's about having the ability to go create your life in the way that you want to and, and live with the freedom you desire. Yeah, nothing teaches you the limitations of traditional classical thinking than real-world experience from being in the markets for the last 30 years. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Hi, Frank Comey here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Todd Treseter join me today. Hi, Todd. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show, Frank. Todd Treseter is an entrepreneur and founder of Financial Mentor. Todd educates and supports business owners and investors to achieve financial freedom and personal freedom. As a serial entrepreneur since childhood, Todd built many businesses and retired at age 35 from his position as a hedge fund investment manager responsible for a $20-plus million portfolio. Todd raised his net worth from less than zero at age 23 to self-made millionaire 12 years later by using the same personal finance and investment strategies taught on his website. Todd is an early pioneer and expert in statistical and mathematical risk management systems for investing and became financially independent from age 35 through investing and not marketing. Todd has a BA in economics from University of California. Todd, could I pick up on um, one thing there that I mentioned, that you became financially independent through investing and not marketing. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of the gurus are wealthy not because they did anything with great financial acumen. They did it because they became gurus and they were great marketers and they built marketing empires. And so the distinction I was trying to make is that, you know, I teach financial principles. I teach wealth building principles. So I'd walk the talk before I ever became a guru, if you will, or became a marketer, which is obviously what I do now. So, so would you consider yourself a financial guru from becoming a um, self-taught or maybe perhaps the principles that you've applied throughout your own learning experience through life and through college? Yeah, I mean, you know, in college, you get the thinking process, right? So as you said, my degree was in economics. So that was useful for thinking process. I mean, I still use a lot of principles I learned back then. Um, so it wasn't a throwaway, but obviously it wasn't enough to do what I did. So yeah, most of it's self-taught since then. Uh, that's a binding characteristic of me is, is I'm always learning. I call myself an infomaniac. Not to be confused with the N version of that. It starts with an I, info, maniac. I just love gathering info and learning. And so that's just something I love to do. That's extremely key because I suppose there are limitations in what we actually take on ourselves, be it in college or school. And it's up to us in our, I suppose, our free time to explore other means and other readings that are outside the curriculum that could help us identify paths to investing 
And that's what you offer with Financial Mentor for not only, I'm sure, business owners and investors, but also people who have that keen interest. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the thing about school, school's really valuable. I, I love school. You know, I probably would another lifetime, I probably would have been a professor, you know, at a, at a university. So I truly love school. But the thing, the thing about what I do is you can kind of be out a little more on the edge. You know, the, a standardized curriculum becomes standardized because it's it's proven and mainstream and documented. There's nothing in there that – if you want to get a competitive advantage in business and finance, you've got to go a little further out on the edge and start working with some different things besides the absolute basic mainstream that you would get from a college education. Can I ask you about your experience as a hedge fund investment manager? Yeah, so what I did was I started – you know, I had, I had a crazy idea in college. It, it all began in college. I had I was taking an investments course, and a very successful professor. It, he would he didn't just teach it; he walked the talk. He was a very successful investor. He had done a lot of real estate deals around town, and I was learning from him, and you know, really respected him. And I was looking at the text, and I I looked at the charts, and I said, "Well, I can make money off that, and not know anything about it. I can just do it statistically and mathematically." And I went to the professor and I asked him, you know, is that even possible? Could you do that? And he said, no, you can't. That Nobody's ever done that. It's not possible. And you can understand, I guess, set the context for this. This is back when IBM was first coming out with the first PC. You know, and if you're going to program, you had to program with, uh, like I was programming in college, you had to program with flat cards that you'd have to key punch, you know, the punch cards and all that. And you're working with these big rooms full of mainframes and everything. And along comes IBM with the first PC and Apple was still operating out of a garage and they had the Apple IIe and all that or whatever whatever version of Apple II it was. And and so you got to go way back that we didn't have databases. People didn't understand how to do this stuff. And, and he said it couldn't be done. And I just looked at it and I thought, no, I can do that. And, you know, I, I knew I could do it. So I asked the only other authority I had in my life about investing, which was my father. I showed him my ideas and showed him what I thought I could do. And he said, well, Nobody's ever done that. You can't do that. And so I went off and built a business around it. It was very successful. It totally worked. And it's still the principles I use to this day. And was the hedge fund your, your own business, was it? Yeah, yeah. Was so that was those principles. Yeah. So my first job out of college, I worked for Hewlett Packard. Again, you have to go back to the day. This was in the day of the book uh, bestseller In Search of Excellence. And it featured you know companies like Hewlett Packard and IBM as great companies to work for. And my resume was pretty good coming out of college. Um, I had pretty good work experience. I ran the businesses on campus for the government, for the for the student government. I got the main political leaders elected because to me it was just a marketing experiment. Um, I didn't have big political biases. I was just curious if I could pull it off, you know. And so um, I ran the campus businesses. I had a good resume for a kid coming out of college. I, I got straight into one of the top companies. And um, but I spent all my evenings and weekends studying uh, investment strategy, and so eventually I hooked up with another guy um, that was an upstart hedge fund. He had similar principles, similar ideas that I was doing, and we teamed up together. And eventually, I became a partner in the hedge fund, and you know, developed. I spent twelve years researching um, statistical and mathematical investment systems. And Dom, you must have come across numerous booms and busts or cycles, financial crises in your time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I traded through the 87 crash, you know, the assassination on uh, President Reagan in the U.S. and, you know, the Russian nuclear uh, blowout Chernobyl. Uh, that was a major event for the commodities market. So, yeah, I've been through a lot. 
And how would a statistical model protect you from cases like that? Because they're probably they're obviously unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, I call them UFOs. Okay. Um, I actually have a term for it, right? Un- unidentified fundamental occurrences. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a it's a UFO, and nothing protects you from those. So, like the Russian debt crisis. Uh, I'm sorry, not the Russian debt crisis. <laughs> Russia's had several crises, right? We had the debt crisis, which took out long-term capital management. But um, I also uh, the Russian uh, Chernobyl nuclear explosion. Um, I was a fairly substantial commodities trader back in the time, both for my own account as well as the the hedge fund. And it was the first time I personally lost six figures in a day. Mm. Um, I had never done that before personally. Um, it, you, you never forget it, right? Your first major six-figure loss in a single day. I woke up and everything was limit against me. And I was like, well, how did that happen? I've never seen it. And they're, and they're lock limit, right? So in commodities, if it's lock limit, that means there's no, yeah, there's no trading. You're stuck. And so, um, you know, I lost a lot of money uh, on that one. And that's that's part of it. You know, there's no perfect methodology in investing. Uh, I'm sharing with you one of my biggest nightmare moments. I mean, uh, they're not all like that, obviously. Um, if they stand out to my memory that much, they're very rare occurrences. But they can happen. Uh, unidentified fundamental occurrences, you know, they, it will happen. And would you have traded a lot of options at that point in time for your hedge fund portfolio? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Would I have traded options for it? Yeah. No, back then I was trading futures contracts. Okay. Options on futures were not terribly liquid, and because I ran the hedge fund, I was moving decent size. Um, so you're actually trading the underlying futures, so you had to be careful with leverage and, and different things. Yeah, I've never been a big options trader. The time premium decay, it's a its a very different formula from what I've done. So anyway, I, I trade the outrights more than the options. Uh, that's the term anyway. If you trade the, the instrument itself as opposed to the, the option is a derivative. So the outrights is the instrument itself. The option is the derivative, which is the uh, the thing it, it's trade based on the outright. So I, I lecture financial derivatives and I have a module at level nine, postgrad level. And I teach the trading of futures and options and this type of stuff. But I was told a couple of years ago to change the title of my course from financial derivatives to something else, all because of what happened to the financial crisis. Uh-huh. And I didn't know whether this was because of the bad name it might have out there for a student to carry with them on their transcript when looking for a job. But I felt that I would do the industry injustice if I had to do that because people kind of move the table or kind of, as we might have said, market up the course or the content of the course. And it's almost like window dressing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's out of integrity, right? It's derivatives. That's what they are. So that's, that's what, what the course are. is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it says exactly what it's meant to be with the title. I'll give you another story on a very similar idea is, you know, market timing was never a bad name until along came that, what is it, Attorney General from New York, Elliot Spitzer. I, I don't know if I have his title right, but, you know, he was with New York and, you know, he was this great vanguard of uh actually that's not wrong term because that's a major investment company he was the great leader of um propriety and what is correct and what is not and gave market timing this huge bad name but of course then he gets taken down by his playing with prostitutes which i thought was quite funny um you know so anyway these terms get go in and out of favor uh but ultimately they are what they are right derivatives are what they are and market timing is what it is and 
we don't have to put cute names on it like you know active risk management or whatever we can call it what it is regarding the financial mentor website that you have where you actually uh, teach and educate people on how to look after their own wealth we're not mm-hmm. necessarily talking about derivatives or anything here we're talking about getting the the fundamental principle of trying to apply yourself to start that savings or cut the costs on unnecessary things and then build up your investment from that. Would yeah. I be correct by saying that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's been one of the great learning adventures for me in doing this business was, you know, I came into uh, becoming a fin. So I quote unquote retired, you know, air quotes, if you could see me um, at age 35 and I'm now 54. So this is almost 20 years ago. Um, and, I had this crazy idea, like, could I help ordinary people achieve extraordinary financial results, right? And where it came from was, you know, people would always ask me, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? You know, and and they they always wanted hot stock tips or a hot real estate deal, depending on whatever the flavor of the day is, right? Nobody really understood, like, how you actually achieve unusual financial results in your life. And so I came into this whole game with the same myth that, every other quote unquote guru does, which is, you know, I thought it was just show them how I did it and they'll do it. And it doesn't work that way. It's about half financial knowledge and about half, uh, personal development that determines your financial outcomes. So like one of my, my second course, I have a, a process called seven steps to seven figures. Cause what I figured out over the years of coaching one-on-one clients from a wide variety of walks of life and everything is that everybody pretty much walks through the same seven steps on the path to wealth. And so I mapped them out into a step-by-step process, which I'm building out now as courses. But the second course is called um, Habitudes of the Wealthy. And what I learned was that there's specific habits that result in lousy financial results in life, and there are specific habits that result in really great financial results. And they're actually mere opposite each other. And that was kind of an interesting – they produce mere opposite results, and the habits themselves are mere opposite. And so this was one of my my processes of learning the personal side of building wealth and achieving extraordinary financial results. Another one was about how people have personal obstacles to success they have to overcome, you know, about the role of accountability. These are things that I didn't have issues with that I had to learn in order to become an effective coach and really help people produce consistent results. So the key is pretty much self-discipline. Um, yeah, I'm not going to boil it down that simple. You know, if it was that simple, it'd be one step to <laughs> one step <laughs> figures. It wouldn't be seven steps, right? right. And and it would be uh, a book. It wouldn't be you know seven separate courses, each one of different lengths, right? So it's you know you don't want to oversimplify it into no. a soundbite. That's something a lot of people try to do. It's a process, and there's layers that go into it. It took me years to figure out how to help people on a consistent basis, and it's not finance. The finance stuff is pretty well proven. There's not some big rocket science. Like you and I are talking rocket science here in the early part of the interview. Nobody needs to know that stuff. You know, to to achieve wealth, you don't have to know anything we just talked about. It's very simple stuff that works. And and so, but the key is as much you as it is your money. The money is a reflection. It's not a cause. You are the cause. So if you were to advise me, if I was, if I was, a typical client of yours and I said look Todd I need I need a bit of help here I want to be financially free in 12 years or less just like you 
how would I get started on maybe the first two steps in order to create a habit? Well, it depends on where you came to me at, right? And that's why habit is seven steps. So you can kind of choose your own path depending on where you're at when you arrive. And so, you know, each step explains what it's about so you can see what, what holes you're trying to fill in your process. Usually people come to me and they'll have, you know, two or three of them they're doing well. And they'll have two or three of them they're not doing well at all. And that's what's holding them back from succeeding, right? So the answer is not cookie cutter because it depends on where you come to me. If you came to me and you really needed the basics, then you'd start with step one, which is just personal, you know, personal finance basics like you'd get from any financial planner. You know, so you get basic budgeting, basic saving principles, you know, how you apply the products that anybody sells, like insurance and all that. Um, so it's all really basic, plain vanilla personal finance 101 that, you know, any, any planner can do that they learn when they go through CFP and stuff. And then you get, then after that, then it gets interesting, right? So then step two is uh, the habitudes. So it's the habits and attitudes that result in wealth. And you have to get that right. That's your, that's what I call your personal and financial foundation, step one and two together, right? Because step one's the financial foundation. Step two is the personal foundation. If you don't have those right, everything else you do is like dragging around a ball and chain, right? Because all those pieces you missed in step one and step two will pull you backward. And then when you go to step three, that's your wealth plan. And when I say a wealth plan, it's not like a broker or financial advisor would do because, you know, they don't include things like real estate. They don't include business entrepreneurship. They're not including, you know, the balance between saving versus investing and, and the life cycle of wealth. And there's all kinds of different principles I teach that you have to build into your wealth plan uh, to get there efficiently. You know, and then step four, once you have your wealth plan, then you start taking action, right? So then step four logically follows. Again, it's all step by step. Um, which is how you take massive action, how you overcome your personal obstacles, your emotional obstacles, how you create up systems that literally pull you towards your goals. Um, because it's one thing to have a plan. It's another thing to take all the action necessary to realize the result. And then, and then when you finally get to step five, that's when you start the real finance stuff, right? So step five is the expectancy investing, which is if you look at steps one through four, it's how you build the wealth in the first place, right? Because you have to build the wealth in the first place. That's the thing a lot of people don't understand. They think it's all about investing. It's not. Um, you have to create the wealth first. Then you have to translate it. This is all done in step three in the wealth plan. And then you have to invest it wisely. And that's in step five, which is expectancy investing. And then it goes from there. Step six is uh, investing just for people who have already achieved wealth because your goals and your needs change once you actually achieved wealth. So most people won't even need step six. It's not relevant for most people until they get there. And then step seven is now that you're a millionaire, so what? Right? Because, because I mean, that's the reality, right? Again, I've been through all this. You know, that I'm just walking the talk. I've been through all these steps. I've been through it with clients. And so step seven is now you're a millionaire, so what? And it's because the whole reason we do this and pursue this is because we have a high goal on freedom, right? And we want to we want to own our lives and want to pursue whatever interests we have. And so the real goal never was wealth or money. The real goal is about a fulfilling life. And that's where step seven comes in. And that's the step I'm personally living right now. I've lived through steps one through six already. Um, and then step seven is the one I'm personally living and developing and figuring out on the fly. Because I'm, I'm like the crash test dummy for every step I teach. Well, it's not a bad position to be in, being a crash test dummy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a fun adventure. You know, yeah. that's one of the things I teach is – Life's an adventure. Go live it, you know. And so that's, and that's that's the value of the financial independence is it gives you the flexibility and freedom to go live the adventure. 
it's not about, you know, sitting on a beach in a hammock and having uh, umbrella drinks, you know. It's it's about having the ability to go create your life in the way that you want to and, and live with the freedom you desire. Yeah, reading a quote from your website, you say, the money was nice, but the inner transformation was the bigger reward. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's been true for my clients, too. You know, again, most of this stuff, you know, I, I went through myself, and then I've taught clients, and I've turned them into principles and archetypes. And so that's been the truth pretty much across everyone is, you know, if you're going to become another person through this process, otherwise you'd already have the goal, right? If you have the desire for the goal, it's a, it's, you would have it. There's something standing between you and that goal. And so by going through that, you go through a personal transformation and you come out the other side, a better person for it. And that's something, you know, most people don't talk about, you know, if if you want a really advanced path to personal growth, just try to get wealthy. <laughs> you know, it's you're going to go through amazing personal growth in the process. You must enjoy watching the news reports on Black Friday and Cyber Monday, or more Black Friday. Yeah, actually, you know, this is funny. You're getting on the personal side. I don't, I don't watch news at all. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't participate in Black Friday or Cyber Monday. To me, you know, Black Friday, I want to spend with my family. It's the day after Thanksgiving. Um, and, and that's not just people chase, people seem to chase the dream, the, the, as you would say, the toys and the goodies rather than the life experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, even like media, I don't, I don't pay any attention to media. Like I don't watch, you know, CNBC or read the wall street journal or any of that because, but I do read academic research papers, you know, because that results in material knowledge that I can apply to my investing. Whereas, you know, the stuff on CNBC, I call it um, financial porn. Yeah. And, you know, it has it's a lot of noise to not only the trading the markets, but also it distorts your perception of the world or, or the environment that you're actually living in. And oh, it's a, it's a great point you're making. I mean, I just yesterday I got off the phone with a client and she was so upset because um, there was yet another shooting down in San Bernardino, California. So this is explaining we're doing this in early December of 2015. And there's a mass shooting down in San Bernardino, California. It was going on in the news as we had our coaching call. And she was in a very upset state of mind. And I was just like, you know, that's, I don't do the news. I, and I, it was an experiment I did long ago. Like I said, I'm the crash test dummy for everything I teach. A few years back, I played a game with myself and I said, what has watching the media done for my life? in the past five or 10 years. Can I, can I think of any one positive thing that's come from me observing media over the last five to 10 years? And I couldn't come up with one, one thing. I couldn't think of one thing. So then I checked with a few other friends and nobody could think of anything positive that had resulted from observing the media on a regular basis over a period of years. And that, that shocked me. I was like, my gosh, if I read books every day for that same amount of time for five or 10 years, I'd have, a library full of great things that occur to me, right? And yet I couldn't come up with one good thing from observing the media, and so I just dropped it entirely. And it drives my wife nuts because she still loves the media, right? And she still follows the news of the day. And I have no clue, and I don't miss it at all. It's never hurt me at all. But it adds to negative sentiment when there's so much negativity out there. And you could say the same if it was positive, but rarely would you get positive news because that news doesn't sell. Yeah, not only not only do I agree with you on what you're saying about how it fills your mind with negative sentiment because the news is generally clouded with negative stuff because that's what you know drives advertising revenues and pulls eyeballs into the screen. Uh, but there's another thing that's even more insidious that people don't talk about. One guy that's really talking about it a lot is a guy named Cal Newport. 
and he's written a book recently about focused work. He has another book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, which is what drives how I develop my website. I'm trying to build something so good they can't ignore it. And then he's got another book he just released, I haven't read it yet, about the importance of focused work and concentration. And all this media stuff, it just blurs it. You know, it just, it distracts. It's just endless distraction and noise and double tasking. And it keeps you from succeeding. It's a bad thing. And it's probably, the next question is probably going to contradict what I was saying to you there. But um, just say the investments in the next number, say within the next five years, and I've talked about this to my own students as well. We reckon that we could be in the midst of a bond bubble. What's well, your perception on that, and how can, if there was a step eight on wealth preservation, would this be yeah, it? First, first of all, first of all, I don't forecast anything. Okay, uh, the met, the way I teach expectancy investing, you can only invest based on the knowledge you have today. So, using that, I would agree with you that there's a bond bubble. I actually wrote a post; it's on my site. You can link to it from the show notes if you want. It's called "The Bond Bubble Is Here: What to Do Next." Now, what's interesting is I wrote that post at the exact peak in the bond market back in 2013 and I've left it intact haven't changed a word on it since so people can see it as a documentation of the reasoning now, the reason I could write that without forecasting anything is that interest rates are bounded to the downside at zero and so as interest rates approach zero you can mathematically figure out what the expectancy is for owning bonds you know you can figure out your holding period returns under a variety of assumptions and when you look at it from that standpoint, you can see that the risk-reward relationship in bonds is so horribly tilted to the negative that the only reason, plausible reason, you could have for owning bonds would be as a trading vehicle, you know, a temporary trading vehicle, because it doesn't mean that, you know, interest rates can't approach closer to zero temporarily. You just know that they're at an artificially low level and the risk is to the downside in terms of valuations and upside in terms of interest rates. So it's just a question of time till long-term bondholders have significant losses. And the absolute best scenario they could hope for is returns that are probably under inflation uh, over the long term. And so almost no matter what, they lose in real terms. So I can write a post like that without forecasting anything just because it's all dealing with mathematical expectancy, which is what how I teach investing. That's, that's the thing with, say, teaching principles of economics or principles of finance at, a, say, an academic level. There are faults to that because there's no application to reality, unlike, say, your one where you have perhaps a learning experience that goes with your own principles. And, yeah. and people can criticize, even though the education system is providing a financial literacy to students, it perhaps is giving some kind of false pretense in terms of how the economy is really working due to many generalizations or assumptions that kind of restricts or bounds or you know prevents people from experiencing the unfortunate events or the opportunities that could exist out there. Yeah, nothing teaches you the limitations of traditional classical thinking than real-world experience from being in the markets for the last 30 years. <laughs> you know, if you trade, if you're in the markets every day, you know, every week, every month, every year for for 30 years, you see the limitations pretty quickly, and the limitations are severe. Um, there's a lot of principles that are half-truths, and they're interesting to understand, and they show you interesting insights, but they have very limited applicability. Todd, 
You mentioned one of your biggest losses there. Do you have any gains or any successes that you'd like to share with us? Oh, that, sure. That, particular, that, that one that stands out to you. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I, I remember, well, I'll, I'll first start with a massive loss. I, I, I understood valuations, uh, valuation principles back in the 1990s. And so as the stock market went beyond its previous historic high valuations for the U.S., obviously Japan went even further back in 98, I started realizing that you know the risk profile in the market over a reasonable time horizon made no sense at all. You know, now of course the market doubled and doubled again, at least in terms of the Nasdaq after that, because it was an un, you know previously unprecedented high. Of course, that's now the new high in terms of valuation. So I did a lot of uh, reallocation based on valuation, which I don't do anymore. I I use it. It's a very blunt uh, understanding of the markets because it can be wrong for a period of years. Ultimately, it's it's always right. Uh, valuation will rule the day, but you can be off for a period of years. The, the slogan in the markets is. You know, the markets can be insane far longer than you can remain solvent. Fortunately, I didn't short anything or do anything really stupid. I just, you know, exited the markets far too early. And I've talked about it on my side. I've talked about the limits of certain types of knowledge and what can be applied and what can't, some of the posts. But then I did start allocating over to commodities and specifically gold stocks. And I was a bit early, but again, I have good risk management tools. I didn't really lose anything. And I remember down at the bottom around 2001, you know, before we had multi hundred percent moves to the upside. And I remember talking to a major public figure at the time. I don't know if you remember John Murphy from CNBC fame. He was a technical analyst. He has to um, see John Murphy. Yeah, yeah, John Murphy. Yeah, he has a, he has several books out. So a major figure, you know. I didn't know he was on CNBC, as in an anchorman. Yeah, yeah, he was a technical analyst for CNBC. Okay. So, and he, he had published several books and is well-known and, and well-respected and, and all that. And, I, and so I'm talking with him and, and I'm, I'm going, John, you know, what do you think? And he says, oh, I'd never trade the gold market. Would never trade the gold market. He says, it's not truly a free market. It's government manipulated and didn't think I was very smart being in the market. And of course, that was within days of the absolute low, the final low. And fortunately, I had the uh, mental discipline to stay with my methodology and it resulted in multiple hundreds of percents of gains over the next several years. But that, that was an example of a winning trade, if you will. Yeah, fantastic, yeah. Great success, especially like for that time period, 2001. I know we reached a peak of $2,000, and we're pretty much giving away half that, oh, well, 80% of that. But um, gold, who knows, as a, uh, you know, we don't want to forecast what, what it's going to be like in the future, but... Ah, but you, so you can use valuation metrics. And then another thing that's applicable that you can look at is you can look at drawdown as a replication or a um, synonym, if you will, for valuation where valuation doesn't stand up. And in that term, gold stocks as well as coal stocks are now five years consecutive declines, assuming we don't have some ridiculous rally here in the final weeks of December. Um, we're looking at five years of consecutive declines. And the number of times that occurs is extremely low percentage. Notice how my analysis is statistical and its expectancy analysis. I'm not forecasting gold or coal stocks to rise. But what you do know from a statistical standpoint is you've got an extremely rare occurrence going on here, both in terms of the percentage decline as well as the consecutive number of years. There's only been one occurrence of six years back-to-back, -back, and that's coal one time. 
And what followed in suit was nothing short of impressive. And, of course, the five-year occurrences have resulted in outsized gains as well. So that's not forecasting anything. That's just telling you what the statistics say. The market will do what it chooses to do. Um, would you recommend to, say, move the move your wealth around or just follow where the opportunities lie rather than if the opportunities are no longer, say, in the United States? Or would you always no- recommend that there are opportunities uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a slogan I like to share with clients, which is the opportunity of a lifetime occurs every year. And and so you just have to be aware of it and have a method for capitalizing on it. And you have to be able to manage risk for all the times that you're wrong. And so those are key principles. Todd, you also have a podcast. Yes. That goes with your website, financial mentor.com financialmentor.com and there's also a lot of resources if you could sign up on financialmentor.com you will actually give them free audio and uh, free ebooks and so on to work through their own um, their own yeah. financial budgeting or what what whatever they have to do in order to get onto that first second third step yeah thanks for mentioning that yeah if, if somebody wants to come over i try to build relationship and trust and so i give away a free ebook it's called uh, 18 essential lessons from a self-made millionaire and it goes through a lot of the lessons I learned on my journey and breaks them down into principles. It's a really quick read. Um, and then I also give away a free autoresponder course called 52 Weeks to Financial Freedom. And no, you won't get rich in 52 weeks. We're not about get rich quick here. We're realistic. Um, but what it does do is in one year, it'll go through and teach a lot of the principles and essential ideas in a structured format. So you'll get kind of a nice roadmap, and you'll know how the piece, puzzle pieces fit together. And those are all for free. It's just to build relationship and trust. Todd, who would your who would your main influencers be regarding perhaps finance or the path that you've taken? Uh, well, it varies. So like if you're defining the path I'm on now, which would be internet marketer and educator, I would say Corey Rudel would have been the primary influence that really woke up my eyes to the potential of what existed in the internet that was going back to uh, 1998. I just happened to stumble upon him. Most people don't even know his name, but his name is the one that taught most of the internet gurus today. He's the guy that taught most of them and that they learned from. And the only reason you don't know his name is because he had a passion for fast Porsches and in his young prime, he was in a passenger seat of a Porsche on a racetrack that hit a wall at 200 miles an hour. So a brilliant career stopped short. But I saw him at his first public speaking appearance, just pure luck. And he was absolutely brilliant. And even though he wasn't a great speaker, he totally woke me up to the Internet as a direct marketing medium and how it could be used to hit niche markets and really make a difference for people and how it could be done ethically and share value and all these wonderful things. And I just I never saw it coming. And he just completely blew me away. So I would, I would give him my biggest influence for the career I'm on now. In terms of the investment career, I can't give one. I mean, I've read literally hundreds and hundreds of books. I, I actually had to have an auction sale on eBay with cases of books. I had so darn many, I couldn't even carry them around with me anymore. And so it's, it's an amalgamation of learning from so many people. Wow. Wow. I, I'm quite impressed by the, the number of books, actually, that you seem to have. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look in my office right now, I'm looking at bookshelves with a couple hundred books there, which is just what I've compiled since I had my big book sale. 
you know, I'm always learning. Like I said, I have a passion for it. I love to grow and become the best version of myself I can become. So that's how that's one of the methods you do it. I I think books are one of the great value in education. That's one of the reasons I'm an author. Is uh, it's an extraordinary value you get an author's best thoughts, you know, carefully crafted, carefully written, carefully edited, and you get it all for a few bucks. Like I mean, it's just insane what a great deal that is. We are probably on the cusp of a and we are regarding the internet. I know you mentioned 1998, but right now with the platforms that are available for us to establish businesses online and even to host this podcast on servers that we don't have to necessarily pay much for and to do this at a minimal cost, there's many opportunities for people out there to create oh, yeah. businesses online. It, it's it's unbelievable. The You know, it's... W- you know, you and I are basically publishers. We're media publishers, and then you have to figure out the monetization model for your business. But it's it's unbelievable the access we have and the tools we have at the ridiculously low cost. And so, the key the key going forward is quality. You know, you can't just put stuff out because there's just so much. When when anybody can publish, I think it was Seth Godin that said this. When anybody can publish, anybody will. And so, what happens is. You end up with just a lot of noise coming out. You know, like you can see that with the growth of podcasts, just like you saw the growth of blogs with the growth of WordPress. And, but, you know, quality will stand out. If, if you put out a really great, really helpful product that changes people's lives, you'll get noticed. And Todd, do you have any personal habits to help you get things done? Because I'm sure, you know, you're an author. You've written a lot of content in terms of, you know, audio as well as video but do you have any personal habits that you'd like to share with us that will help you get that done in morning habits, rituals, habits? Yeah. yeah, so the morning habit around here, my wife and I take turns getting the kids off to school in the morning and the other person gets their workout that morning. So we alternate between you know family getting the kids out and getting our workout in. That starts the day each day early. And I get in the office you know, by 8 or 9 and I have my mornings completely blocked out for product development. So like when you booked this podcast, you notice that you didn't have any morning appointments available. Um, They're all in the afternoon. So my most productive creative time is in the morning. So that's when I do product development and all my creative work. And then in the afternoons, I work with my coaching clients and do podcasts and other interviews and whatever other business needs to be tended to. So that's kind of my structure, if you will. And then the evening is family time when the kids come home from school. And then when the kids are out of school, that's vacation time. So that's, I mean, that's Todd's life in a nutshell. Yeah. And are you working on anything at the moment, a piece of research, a book? Uh, Have you even considered doing some academic journal articles? Well, actually, I have been published in an academic journal. I wrote a post on uh, 4% rule and safe withdrawal rates. I wrote a post about safe withdrawal rates, are they actually safe? And it got picked up. It was invited in as a public input for a, an academic journal. I'm not remembering the name off the top of my head. Something like Journal of if, if – I, they all sound so close that I'm going to end up botching it and I don't want to mess it up and be misquoted. But, yeah, so it got invited in, and I was very much honored. It was, it was great because, you know, you see all the authors in there, and it's all so-and-so, Ph.D., MA, you know, all these acronyms after, and then it said Todd Tresseter, financial coach. <laughs> <laughs> that's another one to talk mark down yeah 
Yeah, so I, I actually have been published in an academic journal, and it's just it was a post that I wrote for public consumption. And the editor, the guy that ran the academic journal, he said he had never seen um, that quality of writing in the public domain. That he he was like, "Did you come from academia?" Like he couldn't figure it out. And I was I was like, "No, no, it's just who I am," you know. And he's like, "Wow." And just out of curiosity about that public consumption, is this something that we touched on already, where people might overconsume? Or was this something about reducing your consumption to live and save at a greater rate if you're younger and accumulate and compound that income based on the interest rates that you have? Well, no, no, this, are you asking what was the subject of the article that got? Yeah. Okay. No, the subject of the article went into the history of safe withdrawal rates for retirement, what the limitations were, where the opportunities were. It's so, so, so I really analyzed safe withdrawal rates in retirement at, at a deep level. I think, I think it was like uh, 8,000 words or something. You know, it, I, Again, don't quote me. I mean, maybe it was 6,000, maybe it was 8,000. But it was a very detailed, complete analysis of safe withdrawal rates. It's on the post. You can get it also as a book form in, over at Amazon if you want. Fantastic. I'll link it up on the website. It'd be amazing. Yeah. Do you have Thanks. any internet resource that you'd like to share with us? Internet resource? Mm. Um... Boy, not off the top of my head. I know one, financialmentor.com. <laughs> See, I, I got to live up to my marketer name, right? <laughs> you do, actually. I thought you do. Todd, I'd love to ask about paying off your mortgage early because we know with a mortgage, irrespective of the low interest rate environment that we're in at the moment, that we can accumulate a lot of interest repayment over the lifetime. How can we reduce that mortgage early or should we keep the money aside if we have that and invest it elsewhere? Okay, so I'm guessing you already know the answer. I have a very detailed post on that subject. It's called Pay Off Mortgage Earlier Invest. Um, and it's one of the top ranked in Google for that term, which is a very popular term. Because it's a major question, a major problem people have. And here's the problem with trying to soundbite this in an interview. And the reason I wrote the post, um, actually where it came from, there's a story behind this, like most stuff, right? Um I wrote a post for Jay Money over at Budgets Are Sexy. I don't know if you're familiar with that website. He's a really interesting guy, right? He has a mohawk, young guy. Uh, he and I met at a uh, conference one time, and we just hit it off. We are like best buds, right? So here you got this old gray-haired guy. I'm probably like the old man of financial blogging. And then you got this young guy with a mohawk, colored hair, and all this, and we were like best buds, right? And so we're just knocking stuff around, and then I told him how I paid off my uh, home in one year. Uh, back when I had the hedge fund, I had a really high income, and I paid off my home in one year and how it cost me millions of dollars. He's like, no way, you know, because he was trying to get debt-free, and everybody talks about being debt-free. I said, yeah, paying off my mortgage early cost me millions. He says, you got to give me a guest post. So I did, right? And I wrote it, and uh, it got picked up by a lot of places because it was so uh, so popular. So, like, Business Insider just picked it up recently five years later. Uh, it got picked up by Consumerist. I mean, major, major sites. And, but what shocked me was how little people understood the subject. Like the quality of the comments was so low and so poorly understood that I went, oh, my gosh, like nobody's really ever explained this. Like people don't get it at all, right? And so I went ahead and, and researched it and said, wow, nobody's really written a detailed post that really analyzes this in full detail. And so I did. And so it's on my site. It's called Pay Off Mortgage Earlier Invest. And it goes through step by step how you analyze the decision. And it's not simple. 
because there's both a science and an art to it. There's an emotional side to it about the desire to be out of debt that you have to weigh and put a value on, as well as what the actual science is or the math of doing it. And it, it defies common sense because people don't understand present value equations in finance to where they can really intuit their way through the numbers. And when you have these historically low interest rates that you have now on mortgages, um, you can get some really upside-down results that you might not expect. And so I don't, you know, I'm not trying to skirt your question as much as point people to post and say there's no better way to analyze it when I put it in the post. I made it as succinct as I could. Because even though we have a lower interest rate, the repayment that you have over a 25, 30-year period could be the equivalent of your actual mortgage. Correct, correct. But if you invested the money instead, you might earn a higher return, which would accumulate into higher value. Not only that, in the U.S., at least I know in uh, U.K., they changed the rules. I guess you're losing your mortgage deductibility um, in the U.K. But in the U.S., it's um, it's still deductible. And so, you know, there's there's a lot that you have to weigh out. You also have to look at your prioritization, like, what have you done with your post-retirement savings versus your pre-retirement savings? There's there's layers to it, and each person's situation is going to point to a slightly different conclusion depending on your values and your specific financial situation. So, yes, what you're saying is true, that paying off the mortgage does reduce your total interest cost, but there's a lot more to it than that because you've got the substitution effect, right, economic principle. You know, where does that money go and what does it grow to? You know, how does all this play out? And there's a variety of assumptions in the equation. It's, it's complex. You have to really dig into it deep to really understand it. Todd, if you were a financial advisor to the U.S. government, if there's such a term, or Treasury Secretary, what suggestions or what policy decisions would you try to implement in order well, to fix the problem that, well, perhaps it is a problem. It's a ticking time bomb in terms of the debt accumulation yeah, I first of all, a man's got to know his limitations, right? I know the wealth building game at the level I play it at in terms of running government policy and government economics. I would be out of my field. With that said, I do agree with you that ultimately there's something major wrong going on and that there will be a problem resulting from it. I mean, mathematically, the government can't pay off the debt. We, we all know that, right? So it either defaults in kind or defaults in principle. Could it pay uh, off at oil? Pardon me? Could they pay it off with oil if they become a net exporter? Again, see, this is where you go into government policy is unique. It's a little different from a human, you know, a single human being. So I, I'm an expert in understanding wealth building for human beings, you know, individuals. Yeah. Um, when you go into government policy, you're dealing with a whole different thing now because you've got, you know, the, the debt is denominated in your own currency. There's many complications to the equation that I understand. I know they exist. But it's out of my wheelhouse, and so I don't really have a right to comment other than to say that I really do wish they'd stop messing with the economy and allow the economy to go its natural course. You know, we didn't get to where we were by uh, economic manipulation of our own economy, and it's gotten really out of hand. I will say that much. They need to allow the economy to take its natural course. But the problem is the government has gotten so deeply involved and is the guarantor of last resort for so many different areas that they simply can't afford large-scale defaults and large-scale problems. And so they try to kick the can down the road because they are the guarantor. So it, it's a deep, deep, convoluted problem. And anybody that gets on the show and thinks they're just going to throw out you know, soundbite solutions just doesn't get 
how deep this problem is. I mean, you can even go into the lobbying and the structure of you know pub policy, and it, it's it's a mess. Todd, will we end on a brighter note? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, how about this? No matter how this world goes down, it'll all trade its way there. And if you know what you're doing, you can be fine. You know, you just have to know what you're doing and you have to be positioned correctly for it. There's a way to make money in any environment. So that's your that's your positive note to end it on. You know, no matter how glum it is for, you know, ultimate outcomes on certain pictures if you're positioned correctly for it it can be a bright day for you and spend it with your family as well spend time yeah. with your family is not all about being financially free it's about being personally free as well absolutely step seven <laughs> todd thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining my economic rockstar i had a blast and i personally learned a lot from you share it again with our listeners where they can find you um, my site where everything happens is financialmentor.com. So all one word, financialmentor.com. So I'd love to have you over there. Great. I've been there and I'm going to go in it again. You can find all the links to Todd on economicrockstar.com forward slash Todd Tresitor. Todd. Hey, you know what we should do? Let's just make that forward slash Todd because nobody can spell Tresitor. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You can find all the links to Todd on economicrockstar.com forward slash Todd. That's Todd with two Ds. <laughs> Thanks, Todd, Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star. It was a pleasure to talk with you, Frank. Thanks very much for taking all this time out, Todd. Appreciate it. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.